We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there, you can also find that printed for you in the bulletin, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Well, if you decide to take a trip somewhere this summer, if you decide to go on vacation somewhere, you will want to make sure that you're prepared for that trip. And the bigger the trip and the further away from home you're going, the more carefully you're going to want to prepare. Uh, If if you're going to go fishing at Camp Croft, it's no big deal if you forget your fishing license and have to run back home and get it. But if you're going to Montana to go fly fishing and you drive out there and you're planning to to buy the fishing license when you get there and you leave your driver's license in Spartanburg, that's a big deal. Not not that I've ever done that. That that would be 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 a big deal if you did that. You want to prepare carefully for your trip. So the packing list is important. But the things you put on that packing list are going to be determined by what you're getting yourself into, where you're going, what the terrain is going to be like, what the weather's going to be like, how many bags you're planning to take. You want to be prepared. You want to prepare yourself appropriately for the trip that you're going to take. I think that's what Mark is doing for us in the passage we're going to look at this morning. He's preparing us for a trip. He's giving us travel instructions He's showing us how we need to be prepared in order to carry out the Great Commission, in order to go and to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ. So, uh, look with me, Mark chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1. This is God's Word. He went away, and this is Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and we give you thanks for it. Uh, We pray that you would use it now uh, in our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if if you and I, as God's people, are going to go out and make disciples, if we're going to travel along the road that Jesus is telling us we've got to travel along, there's four things from this passage that are needed. We need to travel together. 
along this road. We need to travel light. We need to be prepared for rejection. And we need to trust Jesus. We travel together, travel light, be prepared for rejection, and we're going to have to trust Jesus. Uh, First of all, we need to to travel together. Uh, The first six verses here recount Jesus going back and ministering in his hometown and the, and the reception or lack of reception that he received there. there. And we're going to come back to that in a minute because I want us to start in verse 7 where Jesus calls the 12 together and he begins to send them out and he, he gives them authority to, to cast out unclean spirits uh, and to heal and, and to preach. And he sent them out two by two. Uh, he, he didn't send them out alone. He sent them out two by two. Uh, our family loves the television show Alone. It's on the, it's on the uh, History Channel. And, and what they do is they send out, I think it's like 15 people, they send them out in the Canadian wilderness, but they send them out by themselves with a bare minimum of provisions. You get to pick like 10 things, and you are absolutely alone by yourself in the wilderness. And that contest is basically who can stay there the longest without going crazy and giving up and say, okay, I want to come home now. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating television show, but it's brutal because you, you see how hard it is to be alone for any length of time. You know, you're depressed, you're lonely, there's no one there to, to, to pick you up when you fall, there's no one there to encourage you when you're down. And that's what ministry can be like sometimes when you or I try to go it alone. Uh, That's probably why we read in the book of Acts chapter 8 that they they said they sent to them Peter and John. In Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, We had missionaries here last week who shared with us a little bit about what they're going to be doing They're going to Athens, Greece to to minister the gospel. But they're not going alone. They're going as part of a a larger team uh, who are going to to, to do the work of of missions there. When you go out with others, you can pray for one another. You can support one another. You can encourage one another. You can hold one another accountable even. Now, that's all well and good, right? Uh, How do we apply that to us? as a church body this morning. Uh, I think it's important for us to remember that we as a church, as a church, are traveling together. We're planning a church together. Uh, And if you have signed up to be a part of this, or if you sign up to be a part of this, uh, you're, you're not saying, hey, I've found this great little church where my spiritual needs are being met, and I want to be a part of that. What you're actually saying is that I, we, my family want to be a part of planning this church. We want to we own this. Uh, this is not simply Justin and Susan planning a church or Keith and Annie. It's not simply we're paying staff to plan a church. But we together as a body of people are attempting to plan a church in Spartanburg. And we're not just planning a worship service. We are trying to plant a worshiping community. And we're in this together. We've been called to Spartanburg together. We've been called by Jesus to reach Spartanburg, the downtown area, and the schools, and the college campuses, and the neighborhoods around here. We are on mission 
together to reach Spartanburg. That's one of the reasons I think our ministry teams are so important. Uh, worship and build and reach our three ministry teams. They're important because they help us to travel together, to be in this together. But what else does it mean? What else does it mean for us to, to, to travel together and to be in this together uh, as the body of Christ? It means that we're in this together financially, uh, that together we share the cost of advertising, getting the news out about the church, paying for a place to meet in the worship, uh, ordering materials so that our Sunday school teachers have things uh, to use as they teach our children, uh, bearing the cost of, of the staff of the church so that our families are provided for. Uh, secondly, it means that because we don't own a building, because we don't have a building where we can get together at during the middle of the week, we have to work at community. We have to work at building relationships uh, with one another. We have to make do without some of the bells and whistles of a larger church. And we have to work at building those connections with one another, loving one another, caring one another, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another. It also means that we reach out together. And I think that's really encouraging that, that no one of us individually has to bear all the burden of reaching. That's part of the Great Commission. We're reaching the lost. But no one of us has to bear that alone by ourselves. We reach out together. Uh, we, we talk to each other about the relationships we're trying to build. We pray for one another in our outreach efforts. We think about how we can reach out not just as solitary individuals or not even just as solitary family units, but what does it look like as, as you're building relationships with other people in grace, what does it look like to begin to incorporate other people from outside of grace into those relationships, into some of those meals that you're sharing together, into some of those outings that you're taking together? What does it look to begin to, to incorporate others into that, into some of those things? God has, has called you, he's called us together, he's put us together uh, in this church plant. Uh, we're, we're traveling together as a church, and we ought to be talking about and praying together about what that looks like. And we ought to ask ourselves from time to time, uh, am, am I just kind of expecting grace to, to meet my spiritual needs? Am I just showing up for my, my Sunday QT kind of fill up? Um, or do I see myself as part of a team that God's put together and we're traveling together in order to reach Spartanburg. We've got to travel together. Second thing I think we can take from this is that we need to travel light. We need to travel light. In verses 8 and 9, you can see there are certain things that Jesus wanted them to take with them, and there are certain things that Jesus wanted to be provided for them through the hospitality of the people they were going to reach. And I think that the big lesson we can draw from this without getting caught up in the minutia of it, is that, is that Jesus wanted them to travel light. He wanted them to travel light. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm horrible. I'll just confess, I'm horrible at traveling light. Uh, if, if we go to the beach this summer, I'm going to take a pair of tennis shoes for when I work out. Uh, I'm going to take a pair of Chacos for when I go kayaking. I'm going to take a pair of Adidas flip-flops for when I go to the pool or to the beach. And then I'm going to take some nice flip-flops or Birkenstocks or when I go out. Those are my dress shoes. Uh, or if we go to church or something. 
And, I, and I, I've, got a, I've got a big L.L. Bean duffel bag, and if I'm gone for two days or if I'm gone for seven days, it's, it's about the same in that thing. I've, I've, I'm filling that thing up every time. I have an in-law, on the other hand, who's got some military background, and I think he shows up with a Publix bag and a toothbrush and a bunch of reversible clothes or something because he can make that last anywhere from two days to, to two weeks. All right? he, he knows how to travel light. Um, as a culture, in terms of our earthly possessions, I would say most all of us are probably horrible at traveling light. All right? if you, come to my house and look at the stuff in my basement. All right? look, look at our attics. Look at the self-storage units that we buy because we've got all this stuff that we've got to put somewhere. There's a cost associated with carrying all that stuff around. Uh, if, you, if you travel somewhere this summer, you know that there's a cost associated. If you try to take too many bags on the airplane, they're going to start charging you for that. There's a cost associated with it. When we travel through life, there's a cost associated with trying to travel with all of this stuff that we have. Uh, when I'm worried with taking care of my stuff, like the more stuff I have, the more stuff I have to take care of, the less time I actually have to devote to mission, to devote to, to reaching out to others, because I'm busy taking care of my stuff. When I stuff my schedule, even though that you would think that would create more opportunities for outreach, what it tends to do is just make me feel so busy and harried that I don't really connect well with any of the people. I'm just kind of going from thing to thing to thing. There's, there's a cost associated with stuffing my schedule. When I'm worried with paying for all of this stuff, there's a cost associated with that because I don't have the resources to share with others who are in need. Um, we make choices in the things that we buy. And then we have missionaries come last week, and they talk about going to a place, what, what was it? It was like less than 2% of the people are evangelical Christians, and we think, man, that would be so awesome to be able to support them. But then we start thinking about it, and I've got this bill, and I've got this bill, and I've got this bill. I'm not, I'm not traveling light, and so I'm not free to give. Now, I want to I sidetrack a little bit here, not sort of a sidetrack here, um, but, but we hear these kind of injunctions all the time. It's not unusual for me to say something like, like what I just said. And, and we hear Jesus say, certainly, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And we think, and I need to do a better job at doing that. I need to do a better job at doing that. Uh, I, I need to change. I really want to work on that. And then nothing really changes, right? The next time you hear it, you're like, oh, man, I, I really need to work on that. And it's like we make a New Year's resolution every week when we go home from church. Uh, and it, it lasts about as long uh, as the New Year's revolution. We get, we, we get fired up, and then it kind of fizzles out. Uh, I've been reading a, a book this week called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. Uh, and it's by a man named James Smith. And in it, uh, one of the illustrations he uses is he talks about his wife constantly nagging him, trying to get him to eat more uh, ethically and cleanly and eating more healthy and eating locally and eating in ways that contribute to, to human flourishing. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not agreeing or disagreeing 
with his wife. I, I think in some way I'm afraid that arguing about food may replace in the church arguing about how we educate our children. Um, so I want to say grace is a place for homeschoolers, public schoolers, and private schoolers, and grace is a place for people who go to Costco and for people who wouldn't be caught dead in anywhere but Whole Foods, okay? So this is, this is for, this is for illust- illustrative purposes. Um, but he, he says that his wife couldn't really convince him to change his mind. But then he started reading Michael Pollan and Wendell Berry, and he changed his mind about it. And, and wives, you know how that is. You can get like, I'm trying to tell you this, and then somebody else finally convinces him to change his mind. But then he said a funny thing happened. So he had this idea, okay, this, this is right. I need, to do, I need to do this. But then this funny thing happened. He discovered this huge gap between his thoughts and his actions. And he said it happened, his habit is to take a book along with him, whatever he's reading, and if he's got kind of some time, instead of checking his phone, he'll read a few paragraphs and highlight a few things. And he was reading Wendell Berry one day, and, and Wendell Berry's um, got this book called Bringing It to the Table. And if you've never read Wendell Berry, he's really into small farmer, local food, uh, hates industrialized, the industrialized food system, all that. So he's reading Wendell Berry, and he's like, man, that's right. He's like, amen, amen, I'm, I'm all for this. And then he said, it struck him. He said, an ugly irony struck me. I was reading Wendell Berry in the food court at Costco. He says, there are so many things wrong with that sentence that I don't even know where to begin. Costco, for those who may not know, is a retail chain specializing in big box, bulk size, mass-produced food, and other goods. Indeed, the food court at Costco might be a kind of shorthand for what Wendell Berry imagines when he pictures the sixth circle of hell. But, but here I was, munching on one of those Costco foot-long hot dogs almost certainly not from Happy Pigs, while nodding in agreement with Wendell Berry. And so he said he saw this gap between what he thinks he wants, which is to eat like Wendell Berry, and what he really wants, which is to just eat hot dogs at Costco. He said, I believed Michael Pollan, but I wanted a Big Mac. And then he says this, you, you, you just can't think your way to new hungers. You just can't think your way to new hungers. Wendell Berry changed my mind, but he couldn't change my habits. Unlearning those habits would take counterformative practices, different rhythms and routines that would retrain my hungers. My hungers would have to be retrained so that I would want to eat differently. So how did he begin to change it? Well, he says a couple of things. He said he pledged himself to a covenant community, which means he pledged himself to his wife. And they they talked through this, and they held themselves uh, accountable on eating differently. And then he says he he committed himself to practices that he didn't want to do. He committed himself to things that he didn't want to do. Exercise, uh, adopting a new diet, getting an app for his phone so he could track how much he was eating. And the result of this, he says, over time was he developed new hungers. He actually found himself taking tennis shoes with him on his trip so that he could run and so that he could exercise 
and craving Greek yogurt instead of the, the, you know, the, the hot dog at Costco, as, as hard as that is to believe. Uh, but, but he says his hungers were, were reshaped over time through these habits and these rituals. Your head, I may have convinced you this morning intellectually, uh, in your head that you should travel together. That you should travel light. That you don't, you don't need to store up as many possessions on earth. But we have these deeply ingrained habits and deeply ingrained wants that, that sometimes we're not even aware of, that our culture feeds and reinforces every day in the messages that we're getting. So we want what we really want. We say, oh, yeah, I want to I travel light and want to travel together. But still inside, what we really want is to travel alone is to t- and to take as much stuff with us as we can in our cars. So we leave here resolving to turn over a new leaf, but we wind up in the parking lot at Costco listening to this sermon on headphones going, yeah, that's right. Well, we're stuffing as much stuff as we can into our cars again. What do we need? We need a, a covenant community of other believers to keep us accountable, to talk about these things, to, to shape our practices. We need a covenant community. And we need practices that we don't want to do, really. Practices that shape us, like attending worship on a, on a regular basis and being shaped by the, the liturgy of worship. Uh, reading the scriptures, praying, praying with one another, fasting. And these practices slowly over time, these practices that Jesus gives us, the means of grace, they slowly begin to change what we really want. They slowly begin to change what we really want. And so I want to challenge us simply as a congregation, and you have to to, to deal with yourself on this. Am I making regular use of the means of grace? Am I making regular use of the spiritual disciplines? Are we, are we as regular at this gymnasium as we are at the YMCA or at Gold's Gym? Uh, talk about that this week with your community group or with your spouse or with your friends. Don't just try to now go do this alone because we're here to travel together. So talk about how we can encourage one another in this. Why is there this gap between what I think I want to do travel light, and what I'm actually doing. So travel together, travel light, and then thirdly, be prepared for rejection. Be prepared for rejection. Back up with me to the first couple of verses. Uh, We're told here that Jesus is teaching in his hometown, and that the people were astonished. They were astonished at his wisdom. They were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at the mighty works he was doing. But they said, isn't this just the carpenter? Isn't this just Mary's son? Now that's significant because usually, even if your father were dead, a man would be referred to as his father's son, not as his mother's son. But they are insinuating, we're not even really sure who this guy's father is. So what they're saying in all this is, Jesus is just ordinary. He's just a carpenter. He's just one of us at best. And at worst, he's illegitimate. He's somebody who ought to be on the margins of society. 
So in light of that, Jesus can't be anybody great. Nobody like that is ever anybody great. And see, they, they knew these certain facts about Jesus, that he was wise, and that he did all these mighty works, but they allowed their prejudices to get in the way of the clear evidence about who Jesus really was. It's kind of stunning when you think about it. And verse 6 says that Jesus himself even marveled at their unbelief. Now, even though we're given signs so that we might believe, the human heart is still so hard. The human heart still says no to this man who came to heal and to forgive and to cast out demons and to bring life. People still said no to that. People said no to Jesus himself. People were offended by Jesus. And if people said no to Jesus, they're going to say no to us. And if people were offended by Jesus, they're going to be offended by us. Why is this message that we bring so offensive? I think verse 12 points us in the right direction. Look at verse 12. So they went out, the disciples went out, and proclaimed that people should repent. The people should repent. Uh, a little further along in verse 17, it's not printed in your bulletin, but we read that King Herod brought John the Baptist and he had him imprisoned. Why did he have him imprisoned? Because Herod had married his brother's wife and John was telling him that he needed to repent and King Herod didn't like that. This message that Jesus brings, this message that we bring as disciples involves repentance. And so if, if, if you and I bring the message of Jesus, we are in essence saying to people, you're living by the wrong story. Your, your, your life is being shaped by the wrong story. You're, you're actually living in rebellion against your creator. And you need to repent, to turn from that, and to believe in Jesus. But I like my life, and I like the story I'm living by. And anyway, I can't imagine that I would be so bad that I would need a savior, that I would need somebody to die for me. Uh, the story's told of, this, of a, a woman who told her pastor, you mean to tell me that if I live a moral life for 70 years, but don't admit I'm a receiver and receive Christ, I'm lost? But that if a serial killer receives Christ at the end of his life, he's saved? And the pastor said, yes, that's, that's the gospel. And the lady said, that's offensive. It's too easy. I don't believe that. I can never believe that. So what do we do? What do we do in the face of that rejection? Uh, Paul speaks of trying to persuade others. So we reason with people. And we try to respond to the objections that they have to Christianity. One of the common objections you'll hear is that Jesus can't be the only way. That that's way too exclusive. That every religion sees part of the truth and that no religion can see the whole truth. And the story that people often use to try to make that point is the story of the blind men and the elephant, right? That there are a bunch of blind men and they come up to an elephant and they're, they're feeling around and one of them grabs the trunk and says, this animal is, is long and slender like a snake. And someone else grabs, the, grabs one of the legs and says, no, it's thick and sturdy like a tree trunk. And another one is touching the side and, no, this is a large, flat sort of animal. 
And so the argument goes that that's how the different religions are, that we're all just kind of blinded. We're, we're touching different parts of what God is like, but none of us can see the whole truth. And that can sound very compelling until you think about what's the person telling the story assuming they can see? They're assuming that they can see the whole elephant, that they've got power that the blind men don't have, that they actually know what God is like. They're claiming to have knowledge of God, an exclusive knowledge of God, that they say you as a Christian can't possibly have. And so that's just one example, but that's one of the ways we try to to reason when there are these objections. But then there's verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus says, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. See, there comes a time when people kind of say to us as we're trying to to bring the message of the gospel where they just kind of say, talk to a hand. I I, I don't want to hear it anymore. And so there comes a point when we ourselves have to shake the dirt off of our feet, so to speak. Not literally, I don't think, but as a way of saying, we, we, we have to say, look, I've I told you. Uh, I, I've pleaded with you. I, I've warned you. I'm not responsible for you. And, and it's time for me to move on to somebody who's actually going to listen. If you carry the message of Jesus, you will experience rejection. And you have to be prepared for that. Uh, re- rejection is no fun. There's a, there's a web page called Rejected by This American Life. Uh, this American Life is a podcast that I listen to, and it's, it's a lot of great stories. And somebody applied to be an intern with them, and they were rejected. Ira Glass rejected them. And they were so just hurt and saddened by this that they created a whole web page called Rejected by This American Life where they try to collect all the stories of people whose stories weren't good enough to get on this American life. Rejection is hard to deal with. It's hard when you're sitting at the lunch table by yourself because you've been rejected. So how do you handle that? I have to know that this Jesus who sent me loves me. And I have to know, remember he sent us out two by two, he sent us out together. I have to know that this person going along with me loves me, and welcomes me as well. Travel together, travel light, be prepared for rejection, and trust Jesus. Um, As we wrap up here, I want you to just think about the contrasting reactions to Jesus here. Uh, Most of the people, most of the townspeople in Nazareth didn't get to see Jesus do anything great because of their unbelief. Jesus, uh, the text says, he could do no mighty work there. That's a, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? To think that the one who ruled the storm a few verses before could not do a mighty work simply because of some hard-hearted townspeople. Uh, the idea, I think we have to be cautious of this, the idea is not that Jesus is like Santa Claus and Elf where he's dependent upon everybody to get the Christmas spirit in order to power his sleigh so that he can deliver the the presents to everyone. Jesus is not like that. The point here is that there are certain conditions where Jesus continues to work. 
He works where people have faith. And the people of Nazareth didn't have faith. They saw what Jesus did, and they said, that's all right. We, we got this. We can do life fine on our own. We don't, we don't need Jesus. And so Jesus, so to speak, shook the dirt from his feet. And the text tells us he moved on to other towns and to other villages. That was the reaction of the townspeople. But the reaction of the disciples was very different. Jesus called them to go out with very few provisions, trusting that he would provide for them. Jesus called them to go out even though he told them they were going to face rejection. And they went. And they trusted Jesus. They believed him. And verse 12 says that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus works where there is faith. Jesus works where there is faith. The point is not if you'll just believe you too can leave and cast out demons and heal the sick. The point is that Jesus delights to work where people trust him and where people walk with him by faith. Where do you need to do that this week? Where do you need to to trust Jesus and walk with him by faith? What's that awkward place you've been hesitant about that you really sense Jesus is calling you to go into? Who is he calling you to go and talk to? Where do you need to learn how to do a better job at traveling light? Well, we're told to prepare to be disciples. We need to travel together. We need to travel light. We need to be prepared for rejection. And we need to trust Jesus. And you say, how can I trust him? How do I know that I can trust him? You can trust him because on the cross, Jesus showed that he loved you so much that he took the rejection that you and I deserved so that we would know the Father's love and acceptance forever. You can trust someone who would be rejected for you so that you can know eternal acceptance. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that you would work faith in us and that you would help us uh, to travel together and to begin to to get unwound from our baggage and to learn to to travel right, that we would not be so fearful of rejection, but that because we trust you, we would go into those difficult places. We pray that you would work mightily in those difficult places. We pray in your name. Amen.